Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first read a scripture passage, which I don't have in front of me. So uh, you can all turn to it with me in Luke 1. Uh, that's Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. So Luke 1, 26 through 38. And at the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you respond by saying, thanks be to God, uh, just what you do. So I'm sorry. It's, it's like the worst when someone laughs at their own jokes and then, you know, so I'm, I'm doing it now. All right. Luke 1:26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will called holy, the son of God and behold, Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I wanted to start with a reminder of this series and kind of where we've been and why we're doing this series and what the purpose of it is. If you remember, we just went through a four-week series called Schemes in which Pastor Bland really brought us through and let us know, uh, reminded us of the, of the fact of the matter, which is that a real hostile group of beings, Satan and his, his army, a real hostile group of beings with great power, they, they are in the business of destroying us. That this is a reality, that this is not a idea meant to rile us up or to motivate us in some kind of strange direction. That there is a real plane of existence in which there are real celestial beings actually intending to destroy us. And destroy us in what particular sense as the people of God? Though they're out to destroy everyone. Don't don't get me wrong. They're out to destroy in particular our relationship to God. And if you are someone in the room who has never felt like you have a relationship with God, it is precisely because this was a scheme of the enemy to make us believe and perceive that God is not real or that he does not exist. Uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes is um, not one of my favorite, but a memorable quote is, 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 is from this old sitcom called Scrubs. And there's just this moment where a character says to another, oh, um, uh, do, do you what is it? Oh, my gosh. It was something like. Like, do you, do you not love me or something? And then they said, I don't, I don't love you. Like, I don't not love you. I, I nothing you. That was, the, that was the response. I'm totally botching the quote now. But uh, the, the, worst, the worst breaking of a relationship is when that person doesn't exist to you anymore. 
And so Satan is in the business of destroying our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Uh, you could have the best thing going on in the world, and all it takes is bad relationships to ruin a perfectly good thing. And so we spent four weeks talking about all kinds of ways in which Satan is out to destroy these, uh, this, hor- this vertical element of our relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with one another. And I think it was really, really pertinent and important. Uh, we just, we've just gone through an incredibly difficult period uh, in our world and in our own lives as a church where we went through a global pandemic and we're still kind of coming out of it uh, uh, in which a disease really uh, uh, combined with a deep political unrest and kind of all of that uh, 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 in the pressure cooker, including the inability to gather with one another, uh, really took us through a difficult time that really ripped the fabric of how we related to one another on a regular basis. Uh, if you've ever done any kind of relationship where you can't see the person face to face, but it all has to be mediated through this disembodied screen thing, uh, you know what I mean. It's not the same. It's not the same as being with one another. And so we, we, we talked about how Satan was easily using that to draw us away from him. And then we are we started this series on the Apostles Creed. Now, why were we doing that? And this would be my first part of introducing us, reminding us why we're doing the Apostles' Creed. One is that creeds, they remind us of truth. Creeds remind us of the things that are true, and they are designed to to, to refocus our minds on uh, the truths that our lives are built on. We we, we all really, really, really need that. Uh, Creeds also form our identity. A really interesting article, I think... uh, Ed Park, Ed, are you here? Is Ed here? No? Okay. Ed, actually, uh, one of our elders, he posted in our, like, kind of community Facebook group an article in which uh, uh, that kind of outlined uh, how political polarization has happened on social media. And one interesting thing that comes out of this kind of book review is that social media is not sociologically about learning views. It's not about learning viewpoints and, like, discussing them necessarily that for a lot of people, social media is about identity formation, that it's about like cultivating a sense of self that you project to the world and to other people. There's a curation and, and, and that actually just seeing other viewpoints is not how you often widen your viewpoints. Uh, that's often you'll just react to them the same way that you would even if you didn't know them. And so creeds in, in direct opposition to this, uh, Say, no, we should not be formed by other factors, but we should be formed by the truth and by an identity built around the creeds or around the Apostles' Creed. We are people who are to be formed by the truths of the Apostles' Creed. We are to be formed not by a sense of whatever is out there and whatever the people in your life and whatever your family and whatever your culture says you ought to be about, says you ought to be centered on. You have to be we, we are supposed to be people that are formed by the truths of the Apostles' Creed and, and of the, I mean, of the many creeds of the church. We're to be one as our Lord prayed for us, as Jesus prayed for. And it is really, really hard to pursue that precisely at moments of disagreement, precisely at moments where you're at conflict and at odds with people in your own community, when you are having a difficult time in your relationships. But that is precisely the task at hand when we are attacked and when we find ourselves in a circumstance in which there is an enemy trying to rip us apart 
what do we do? One of the ways that we do battle and reaffirm who we are is by remembering the creeds that bind us, remembering the truths that bring us together. This is one of the ways that we do battle. You do battle a whole bunch of other ways, but this is one of the ways. We therefore say that the creed is what binds us and not our ethnicity or our background or our culture. That's easy for some of you guys. You're like, yeah, I totally, sounds good. Uh, we are not, we, we, we are bound by creeds and not by our political preferences, our visceral reactions and best attempts to handle the brokenness of the world. You see problems in the world and you have an idea what will be the best way to solve that problem or what the problem actually is. And someone else has a different idea. And what the creed says is that's not what binds you to people who have the same ideas as you, the same tendencies, but instead you are to be people of the creed. We are to be people of the creed. You can see this when Jesus among his disciples calls on one hand, Simon, the zealot who wants to overthrow the government. And on the other hand, Matthew, the tax collector who works for the government. You don't think there were some awkward conversations for three years among the disciples and maybe the other, you know, the other nine in between or what it, I'm, I'm doing it wrong. Ten in between. There's 12 disciples. The other 10 just kind of awkwardly standing there uh, uh, trying to figure out what to do, where to be people defined by the creed. The creed is also kind of a red flag. How do you know if a church has lost its way? How do you know if you as a Christian have lost your way maybe, or if you've lost your way with the relationships you have, maybe something's not going right in your church or in your, uh, uh, in, in the body of Christ. The, the creed, uh, this is one, there's many potential signs to, to know a church is going the wrong way. Um, there's actually this podcast that just got released about, uh, I think it's called the fall of Mars Hill. And so Mars Hill, if you don't know, was a giant mega church with like 15, 20,000 people that suddenly imploded and was gone. And it documents what happened. And so there are other red flags. In that church, the red flag was an extremely abusive leadership culture, right? Uh, uh, among, I'm sure, other things. Uh, but for, uh, for us, the creed can also serve uh, as a red flag. Uh, someone who, a church that has abandoned the Apostles' Creed or parts of the Apostles' Creed, this is a surefire sign that they are starting to, they've lost their way. And so the creed is identity forming on one hand and also a warning sign uh, on the other hand. And so last week, Pastor Bland, he walked us through the world shattering significance of the fact that the, the creed says that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God's son and he's our Lord, and that he's Lord. So he's he's the Christ, right? The promised Christ, the promised liver, God's son, the second member of the Trinity, uh, three persons, one God. And he's our Lord. He is God. And so that's what we've covered thus far. And I'm going to read the creed, including that part, and then read the next two lines that we're about to explore here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. All right. So conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. So what we're going to cover today is what it means, what these two lines mean, why they matter. <laughs> like, you might already be like, ah, I don't know. is this the Christmas sermon? Um, why, why, why they matter and how it makes a difference for us today. So, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We're going to first look at Luke one thirty-five, And the angel answered her, we just read this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, you, you read that and you're like, okay, that's, that's kind of interesting language. Uh, and really all this means is that somehow the origin of, uh, 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 of the baby is God or something like that. But actually, you need to look at the pattern of how God moves throughout Scripture. Look at Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So prior to creation, you have this image of a hovering of the Spirit. And then in Luke, you have the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so these are patterns you see. You see, there's almost the the aroma, the smell of God is about to do something creative. God is about to do something uh, uh, epically new because the spirit was hovering before the earth was created. And then the power of the most high will overshadow you, Mary, the angel says, and the child will be called holy. So what do we take from that? He is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That means his father was not a human father, but God himself. Uh, I, I heard, uh, you know, at, at Somerville, I, you know, I heard an, uh, one of our elders from Forest Hills, uh, Matt, preach this same, uh, uh, you know, sermon, essentially. And he, and he had a nice little quote from C.S. Lewis about how, you know, uh, uh, if a duck has, what, what does a duck beget? And, you know, if a duck has an offspring, it's a, it's a duck, right? And if you have, I don't know, he went through a list of other animals. But therefore, God, this is not my, this is not my illustration, right? I'm just like watching it completely but his whole point was that god begets god right and so his father was not a human father but god himself so jesus is therefore a singularity in the human race this is a unique event that has never happened and will never happen again he so jesus is one of us he's human which we will talk about in a moment but in a very specific way he is not like us because he was conceived by god he's therefore Holy, he's without sin. He is not under, uh, 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 he is not bound by the same curse that we are bound by. He's conceived by God, conceived by God the Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary, the next line. And so we go, if you notice in the creed, we, we go from kind of a, kind of the big picture and then it goes right down into history. So you have, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? There's this big picture. It's a God that made the heavens and the earth. And then in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, it's still kind of big. And then it says, conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, okay, wait, God was conceived and then born of the Virgin Mary. We suddenly touch right down into history. And so we go from an infinite God, Father, Son, and now Spirit to being born god is born and why is this important there's lots of reasons why but one of the most important is that the god of israel the god of the bible always moved through the birth of a child the god of the bible always moved through the birth of a child in genesis 17 you see abraham and sarah abraham is the 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 forefather of israel and him and his wife, Sarah, they're, they're, they're barren. They, they can't have children. They're really old. He's over 90 at this point. I don't know how old Sarah is. I think close to 90. Um, definitely past childbearing age. 
And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Genesis 17, 15, 16. Samson, a judge of Israel, who as imperfect and, and flawed as he was, uh, was able to deliver his people, to deliver Israel for a time from oppression by the Philistines. Judges 13, 3 through 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you were barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. I, I move on. Samuel. One of the prophets of Israel who delivered Israel many times from their oppressors. First Samuel 1, 26 or 28. And she said, oh, my Lord, this is Samuel's mother before he is born. Oh, my, oh, my Lord. And he's speaking to uh, uh, the priest. As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So I want to quote Ben Myers, uh, who wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed and, and, and from the section talking about this. Uh, he says this, that is how it goes in the Old Testament. At the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. Israel's story is a story of miraculous birth, births. And so it's like an artist with a signature, right? Uh, 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 you know. Our God is one who speaks through this living metaphor of birth. Every time in Israel's history, you see that there is a woman barren or, 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 uh, or that, that, that is desiring a child. And then suddenly the Lord not just grants that request, but somehow fulfills his purposes through this very humble means of a birth. And so therefore, Christian faith. It's, it's not just. An abstract philosophical view. There's not just this a God who's like a first cause. Or I guess there's, you know, when you ask people if there's a God. And some people say, and you might be here today and you might think that. But, uh, you know, you think, well, I, I guess there's something out there. Something that's bigger than me. There's, there's just a general sense of like, there, there, there could be something greater than me. Maybe a first cause. Maybe if there was a big bang, there's a big banger, right? There's, there's some kind of uh, force out there. No, uh, Christian faith is about a God who reveals himself through Israel, who then decides to come as he often brought temporary deliverance. He brought final deliverance by coming as a child, a child of promise. Jesus, our God, was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. His birth was like the other miraculous births, except the person who was born was God himself. You see, Jesus is not just a random historical figure. He can't be separated from the God of Israel. I think when I was young, I thought, how do we know Jesus wasn't just like uh, an enlightened Hindu, you know, prophet or something like that? But no, it's, it's very, very clear what's happening here. And this is who he claimed to be. He's revealed as the God of Israel come in the flesh, entering the world by his signature means of fulfilling his promises. And bringing rescue. This is the way God always works in the Bible. Through a child. 
except this time he comes as a child. As an aside, maybe you're here today and you're, you, you are not, you have not bought this yet. You know, this is not what you believe yet. Uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Uh, what you need to consider today and what I'd ask you to consider today is uh, both this truth and kind of what Pastor Glenn preached on last week, which is, is Jesus claimed to be the Jewish God, the God who made everything. So the Jewish worldview, which is that there was a God who's not part of the universe that made the universe. And then he claimed to be that God born as a child who came to save us from this world that is broken. And if that's not what you believe, that is really uh, what I'd ask you to consider today and investigate and think about. Uh, and you could even ask him today, hey, if this is true, and if you're out there, I want you to show me that this is who you are. I'd encourage you to do that today. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You see, this two lines are a miracle at the center of the creed, or, or, or not the center, but they're like the hinge on which the entire creed kind of finds its its focus because the rest of the creed will focus on Jesus and who he was and what he did. I quote Colossians. He is, this is Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus here in these two phrases, in the creed, he is confessed to be fully God, Conceived by the Holy Spirit and fully man born of the Virgin Mary. You see, this is who, this is who we are saying was born as a child. This is who we're saying was born as a child. And so I've explained now what those two lines mean, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, why is this important? Why is this important for us? Why was it important for uh, the people when the creed was first formed. And, and, and then we'll, we'll get into uh, really how these truths applies to us today. In fact, the importance to the church of old and to us, they're not entirely different. Uh, because we're still human beings and we still have the same temptations. You see, the early church, there was a constant temptation to try and make Jesus less than who he had revealed himself to be. And for many people, and this is still true of, of some cultures today, but... They were tempted, uh, many were tempted to believe, well, he wasn't really human. I don't know if you've heard this phrase when someone in sports or in, in, in some other particular human competition or endeavor does something that's just so incredible, you know, it's always the announcer that says, he's not human, right? Uh, we're, there's a, there's this, there's this like, oh, there's no way a person could do that. And so the early church, uh, some of them struggled with to believe that he just wasn't human. I mean, that's not even that dignified to believe, uh, uh, that, that, the eternal God, the, you know, this, that whole Colossians passage, the one, the one that's literally holding all things together in the universe became a child. This seems a little, this is, let's, 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 let's get rid of that part. And so there's a temptation on one hand to believe he was not human. And that's why 
If you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the Old Testament, that's why they document very carefully instances in which you know that Jesus was human. Aside from what I just quoted already, in Luke 29, you see Jesus eating fish and people touching his side. Luke 29, see my hands and my feet. This is after the resurrection. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved, look, they're, they're touching it. They can't even believe it. It's crazy. For joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Broiled fish does not forward the narrative. <laughs> These are written as historical accounts, right? You don't add broiled fish. It just, you know, it doesn't do anything for your story. If it's, if it's a myth or just a, a fancy story, this is a historical account. These documents are written as historical accounts. So you got people, uh, that's why this is documented because people tended to believe he wasn't human. Uh, you have him growing up in a town of siblings, Mark three thirty-two, the earliest gospel, uh, the earliest uh, kind of document, one of the earliest documents. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And so there was an instance in which while he was doing his ministry before he was crucified and resurrected in which his mother, Mary, uh, after, you know, after she had had Jesus, uh, had si Jesus's siblings or half siblings really with Joseph. And they were outside trying, trying to trying to seek him while he was ministering to a crowd. And so that's why these things are documented so that you might know he was human. And why is that so? Why is it so important that he's human? Why is it important that, uh, uh, you know, I have something else written here, but I don't even know what that is. Okay, so why is it important that he's human? If he's not human, then he's not the descendant of Adam. And why does that matter? Because when Adam is cast out of the garden, when our predecessors are thrown out for breaking their relationship with God, God says this to Satan, the serpent, who we started talking about at the beginning of this message. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, scholars believe that that spoke about Jesus, right? But he, Jesus has to be then the offspring of the woman. If he's not human, then he's not the son of David or the descendant of Abraham. We just talked about Abraham and Sarah having a miraculous child. He has to be the son of David, descendant of Abraham. Isaiah 9 talks about being the son of David. This is like the Christmas passage often that's quoted, but this is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus came. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If he's not human, then he's not, in other words, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. And he's not the fulfillment of all of Israel's prophecy because the one who is going to come, the one who's prophesied is a human being. If he was not born, then also his death doesn't mean anything and neither does his resurrection. It's just a sham. We have hope in the resurrection because there's a human being 
who died and came back and showed us a physical touchable. They're touching him in that Luke passage. A, 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 a concrete evidence of what exists on the other side of death. First Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. We are of all people most to be pitied. And, and, and we would be if he is not human, but also if he's not human, if he's not human, then he doesn't understand what it means to be human. Then his suffering, which we talk, we'll talk about in later weeks, then his suffering is not human suffering. And our faith then is based in a lie, but also in a God who cannot understand what we are going through. It's important that he is human. And it is true and verified and documented that he was and is human. On the other hand, if he was not conceived by the spirit, then if he's not conceived by the spirit, then, then he's not without sin. He's not born of God. He has the curse of Adam. If he's, not, if he's not conceived by the spirit, then he's just a guy. His supposed sacrifice for us is just a guy dying. It's just a guy. He's died. There's nothing else. And if he's not the holy son of God who has come, he's just another, maybe at best, a prophet claiming to, to point to the truth. Claiming to point the way. But we have plenty of those, don't we? You kind of look at all the world religions. I remember, I remember trying to look through and think through all the different faiths in the world. And in the end, there's always a guy just pointing, saying, it's over here. The truth is over here. But if he's not conceived by the Spirit, then, then he is the same. And we don't have someone who is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. And that means he is fully God and fully man. This is what we call as Christians the incarnation. It's one of the most central doctrines of being a Christian. It means he was born without sin. Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He is then the second Adam who would reverse the curse of sin. He is the first fruits of the new creation, as I've said, first Corinthians, but Christ in, has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes also through a man. For ad, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so, we then have a holy God who has never lied or broken a promise. That God who is also a human being. Who is capable of being the second Adam. Of dying for us, of rising for us and showing us the other side of death. And he's told us what awaits us when we accept his gift of forgiveness and new life. And so. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so how do these truths apply? I feel like we've already been kind of doing that. But we're going to wrap up here. This is how it applies. Is that we were born into the curse. But our Lord, our God Jesus was born to set us free. We have hope because he became one of us. We were born into the curse. It doesn't, I, you don't have to be a Christian to see that the world is a broken place. You don't have to, you don't have to be a Christian to, to go to work and to see how people screw up perfectly fine things 
all because of something that is wrong with them. I mean, how many times have you said to someone, what is wrong with you? Or at least said it inside, right? What is wrong with you? And sin is what is wrong with us. So we were born to the curse, but Jesus was born to set us free. And we have hope because he became one of us. And so when you go through this week, you can know that he was born. And so he also has felt and touched and tasted. He knows the joy, but he also knows the difficulty. He also was tired like you were tired this week. He has felt misery as you felt miserable this week. He's felt that loneliness that you feel in the quiet moments. He was also betrayed by friends, by people closest to him. He also was misunderstood by his family. We have hope because he became one of us. He also had to sit in tense political times. He also had to deal with sickness and death and had to watch people he loved die. He also had to work and labor and work a job as he was a carpenter. He also wept over people he loved that he wanted to see them go the right way and they would not. He also had to wrestle in prayer to overcome as many of us are wrestling in prayer to overcome. We have hope because he became one of us. But he also was not just one of us. He was, he was, he's able to help because he never sinned, because he is God. He acted in perfect love. He did not perpetuate the curse. How many of you have seen something done to you, you end up doing to somebody else because you're so hurt? He didn't perpetuate the curse because he was holy. He began to reverse it. And in his death, he paid the price for all that we'd ever do wrong. And he made a way to be restored. And he started a change that he will see through until the end. When we put our faith and trust in him, we have hope because he became one of us. He was also our God who came close enough to understand. He's our God who came close enough to understand, but who is also powerful enough to save. He showed us that there is a way to face this world and overcome. And his spirit, which is available to us now, lets us walk in that same power that he walked with. We have hope because he became one of us. We can withstand tragedy in this world. We can handle our tiredness. We can know that our losses in this life doesn't mean that something is gone forever and will never come back. We know that the scale of gain, like, you know, a lot of times you're wondering, what's the payback? How do I know that this is going to be worth it? How do I know that this sacrifice will not end up with me not getting my fair share? We know that that scale's already been tipped and flipped over because of the incredible grace that he's given us and the place that he is preparing us for all eternity. He had a body that would not decay, a body that would never die. He had a body that showed that the world itself will be renewed into a world that's more tangible and more real and filled with more joy and with no brokenness and with things that taste better than things taste in this world and with sights that look more magnificent than the sights look in this world and systems that work better and a government that works better and relationships that are perfect. We're getting all of this on one side that the, the, the scale's been flipped over. We don't have to worry about our losses in this life. And we have hope because it became one of us. We can make sacrifices here and now to see the kingdom move forward. We are called to be a church that walks in sacrifice. And that's really, really hard when you're like, I'm really, really tired. And yet we can do that because he became one of us. We can work hard to understand those unlike us. And stick together through misunderstandings and conflict and tumultuous relationships because he became one of us. We can make time for one another 
and love whatever state our lives are in because he showed us that to be single was a glorious calling worthy of our Lord. To be married is to display the gospel and to be interrupted by children is a way things are done on earth as they are in heaven. We can live with conviction and hope because he became one of us. Let me ask you today, where have you maybe forgotten that he was human like you? What's an area of your life that you've forgotten he has felt that? Where have you forgotten that he is God, that he is powerful enough to move in your life and change a circumstance, change the state of your own heart? Where have you forgotten maybe why he came and who he is? Where has your perspective shifted from being a person of the creed and defined by the creed, but instead defined by something else that has slowly encroached on your life? Instead, let's turn back. Remember that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We have hope because he became one of us. Let me pray for us. Before I do, I want to give you a moment to reflect and think upon what the Lord might be saying to you. It may not even be something that I said as the main point, and yet God may be speaking to you now. He may have something that he's put on your heart, a relationship, a circumstance, something going on, and you find that he is calling you to either an action or to pray a prayer to ask him for help, or maybe that you need to talk to someone I don't want you to let that go, but instead bring that to him. I'm, let me give you a few moments to bring yourself before God and whatever he's brought to your mind and heart and respond to him. And then I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to continue to respond to him. God, for many of us, life has become a predictable cycle. And we are in futile attempts to break that cycle with our own strength. But instead, what you long to do is to remind us of how you came into this cycle of brokenness and sin in the world. And you begin to reverse it. Doing it through your ministry, doing it through your life. And then in dying for us, bringing us the full forgiveness of God for all that we've done bringing the possibility of life through the spirit to see that curse reversed both in our lives and in the lives of others around us. God, we've at moments made you too small. We've made you not human and therefore forgetting that you actually do know how we feel and where we are and what we're going through. In other moments, we've made you not God and unable to save, unable to do anything really and, and and we have instead been left alone to our own devices god forgive us we instead want to be people who affirm that you were conceived by the holy spirit therefore god and born of the virgin mary therefore human like us and walk as people of the creed not defined by any other 
external parameters, God, but instead as people who walk in, uh, uh, in, in, in the identity of being people defined by your word and by what you've done in history in coming both God and man. God, please help us walk with us. We need you as a church. We are being assaulted from every angle and from within. There is the sin among us. There is the world. There is the enemy. But we know that you are mighty to save and strong enough. More than strong for you have overcome the world. Thank you for dying for us. For rising again. God, we, we put our faith in you. We put our trust in you. You are our God. You are the one by whom we live and breathe and have our being. I pray for anyone today that is still considering that truth, considering those claims. Pray that God, you would speak to them, reveal yourself. Holy Spirit, come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.